Canadians are hoarding cash at a record level with households across the country putting more money than ever into savings at a time when Ottawa is doling out tens of billions in emergency aid funding. We know this because of a report published this week, this past Tuesday, by a couple of leading economists at CIBC. And in that report, they talk about Canadians sitting on top of $90 billion in excess cash easily the highest in the country's history and equal to about 4% of total consumer spending. Our next guest is uh, going to talk to us about this because he's quoted in many newspapers. He's one of those fellows that when a story like this comes, we need to talk to Philip Cross because he's going to give us an opinion about it. Mr. Cross spent many decades with Statistics Canada and is now a member of the McDonald Laurier Institute in uh, Eastern Canada. Philip Cross joins us this morning from Ottawa. Mr. Cross, Philip, good morning, sir. Welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you on. Uh, this report uh, indicates we've received. We are sitting on an awful lot of money now. Headline writers, Philip, get to sort of uh, s- uh, summarize uh, an enormous report uh, in into a matter of a few words. And in this case, one of the headlines was, and there were many, household savings in Canada skyrocket during pandemic as Ottawa doles out billions in emergency benefits. And then the story goes on to quote you, among a few other guests, Mr. Cross, as to saying perhaps some of the government largesse was misdirected, and I'm being kind. Yeah, we saw this in the uh, in the second quarter uh, GDP statistics that came out. My former colleagues at StatCan noted that it was something very strange happened in the second quarter, that labor income, the income we earn from working, fell sharply, which was to be expected. Mm-hmm. Almost 5 million of us lost their jobs or worked much shorter hours. And yet overall household disposable income wasn't just uh, flat, it actually increased substantially. And that suggested that the government wasn't just replacing incomes, it was enhancing incomes. And since then, we've been able to collect a lot more data on this. And in particular, we've been able to compare what happened in Canada to what happened in a lot of other countries, and particularly European countries, and in those countries, we saw the, the income earned from working fell sharply, as you would expect of with the, the pandemic. But the governments only replace that income. So take-home pay for uh, most Europeans stayed flat. It didn't increase sharply like it did in Canada. So that was the first tip that you know we might have been overly generous in providing support to people. But then, uh, as you noted in the CIBC report, uh, Citizens Canada also reported a very sharp increase in the savings rate to almost 30%. That's simply unprecedented. Uh, Before the pandemic came along, for example, the savings rate in this country was about 3.6%. So when you see that overnight jump to 30%, that strongly suggests that we sent a lot of money to a lot of households that weren't on the edge, that didn't need support to put food in the table and keep a roof over their heads. A lot of that money went to well-off households that really didn't need it. And indeed, your um, the people in the Fraser Institute, they published a report over the summer that showed that 27% of the money from CERB and related support programs went to households earning over $100,000. Clearly, those households are not on the edge of yeah. uh, you know disaster. And a lot of that money just got banked. And a lot of it went to uh, children. A lot of the student benefits, for example, went to upper-income kids. 
and a lot of spouses in these uh, in these families got the full CERB benefit. So it appears that the government support programs were not very well targeted at all, that they used a real grape shot approach and basically just threw money out the door at everybody, and a lot of it went to people who didn't need it, and it ended up in savings accounts and not being spent in the economy, which was it, its intention. And I, I recall also, Philip, all of the political parties uh, took advantage of the CERB program, applied for the MAX, and as I understand it, received a said MAX uh, funds. So that uh, you can't... I, I'm going back to the origins now of, of the government relief or bailout programs, Philip. And in those days, uh, at the beginning of CERB, and uh, with this incredible emergency underway in which uh, the the, the well, we were locked down for crying out loud. We couldn't make money yep. in many cases. So okay, they so they and they said right up front, you know, we're we're going to err on the side of uh, of uh, dealing with an emergency. Now they did say a few things like ignore all obvious red flags that caused more than a few of us to go. Really? I mean, that's yep. that that's pretty basic. You, you you can leave that in the fundamentals. But they decided no, but they would remove a lot of those, uh, the, the, the usual checks and balances were taken away in order to just get this gusher of money out the front door into the hands of Canadians who were, in many cases, certainly not all, but in many cases, pretty darn desperate. So that, that, that sort of damn the torpedoes approach, just get the money out, we knew even on day one, Philip, this, the, the, a lot of this, not a lot of it, but some of it was going to be unnecessarily spent. Yeah, nobody's going to argue that uh, this country didn't need support programs. As you said, you know, this was a completely unforeseen pandemic. We wanted people to stay home. We didn't want people out begging. We didn't want them out looking for jobs. So it was entirely appropriate to have a a support program. The point is that uh, most countries were able to design programs that just replaced income, that targeted the low-income households that needed help. Right. Uh, no other country went to the excess of Canada in actually increasing incomes, in in sending a lot of money to households that didn't need it. And then as a result, a lot of this money ended up in, the, in savings, unlike most other countries. Another example, though, and, you know, the longer, the more experience we have, the more time we have to dig in the data, the more it becomes obvious there were problems, especially with the third program. It came out this week, for example, that, Nearly 1 million Canadians uh, got CERB, even though they had not filed a tax return in 2019. That means they didn't have a job in 2019. The whole point of CERB was it was supposed to replace income. Right. It wasn't meant to be a guaranteed income for people who had never worked. It was supposed to replace. In fact, you were supposed to have income of at least $5,000 exactly. in 2019. So. Clearly, CRA was able to identify these people in retrospect, and presumably they'll go back and get this money back. But that just shows that the uh, CRA just signed off. They were told to just allow anybody who applies, send them a check, mm. no questions asked. And, uh, you know, it, some, some questions should have been asked. It was pretty obvious. If you just tell people, you know, you're going to get this matter, this money no matter what, that a certain percentage of dishonest people are going to apply and, and get no the money, question. and that's apparently exactly what happened. Exactly. The system gamers showed up in droves. 
Well, it was difficult to miss the headlines uh, in the last couple of days in all the papers of the nation. Canadian households and businesses sitting on $170 billion excess cash hoard. This is all reflecting a report released uh, earlier in the week by CIBC economists and follows up on another report from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, also taking a look at Canada uh, versus the rest of the world in terms of the government response to COVID-19. Here to take a look at it is a fellow sought after by most of the newspapers of the nation for a comment or two about the spending habits and the spending strategies of the Government of Canada. Our guest from the Macdonald Laurier Institute is Philip Cross, a 36-year veteran of Statistics Canada. And Philip, one of the other headlines, the subheader says, quite rightly, we told people we would compensate them for lockdowns that were beyond their control. But we did more than compensate. And that goes dot, dot, dot over to you because you had more to say about that specific uh, point. Yeah, we did more than compensate. Uh, I think I went on to say that people weren't supposed to make money on this. That's right. That the idea was that, you know, you lost uh, billions of dollars of income from not being able to work. And we were going to put that back into your pocket. But we did more than, than uh, put it back in the top back in the pocket. I mean, the government likes to say that we had Canadians' backs. Well, it turns out we had their back, front, top, bottom, and both sides because mm-hmm. we just poured money into people's pockets in the second quarter. That's all well and good, and people obviously enjoyed that a great deal in the second quarter. The problem is that it was also reflected in the fact that Canada had the largest government deficit of any of the major nations. The IMF released a report last week, their their semi-annual fiscal monitor, that showed in Canada we're running deficits of 20% of GDP. That's twice the level uh, we saw in Europe. And we just talked about in Europe, you know, they have much more experience in targeting programs to people who need it. So they replaced income, but they didn't increase it. Right. And as a result, their deficit is only uh, half as high. So, you know, in the long run, we're going to pay for this excess through much higher government deficits. What uh, What is the likelihood? Now, you, we've talked a little bit about how it was so important at the beginning of this crisis to literally shovel the money off the back of the truck and, and hope it got to as many people who really needed it as quickly as, as humanly possible. Uh, and in the process, of course, a lot of gamers jumped up and decided, okay, sure, I'll take some of that. And a lot of people yep. who really didn't need it were also included. So now it's up to the government to try and recover some of that money. Philip, how much of that money, uh, A, might there be or that is recoverable and what percentage of that you think they're actually going to get their hands on again? Well, you know, the uh, CRA data that was released last week showed that nearly 1 million Canadians, uh, as I mentioned, got this money even though they didn't hold a job. So hopefully they'll be able to get that money back there. We're talking about, uh, you know, uh, less than $10 billion, but right. a significant amount of money. Absolutely. Anyway. But the uh, the large amounts of money in the Fraser Institute I talked about that was sent to people earning over a hundred thousand, they're not going to get that money back because there was nothing illegal or wrong about that. Sure, these people followed the program guidelines. It was simply the program itself was badly designed. But you can't blame people for taking advantage of a badly designed program. Right, that's the fault of bureaucrats, not of people applying. So uh, you know, I'm afraid you know the vast majority. First of all, let's make it clear the. The majority of this money went to Canadians who needed it. Yes. 
an unprecedented 5 million people lost their jobs or had much shorter working hours, inevitably we were going to spend a lot of money to help these people, and deservedly so. Mm-hmm. The problem is that a good, it appears something like 20, 25% of this money uh, went to people in high-income households that really didn't need it, and another 10%, say, went to people who, who uh, didn't deserve it. I'm not even counting fraud and outright fraud in, sure. there in all these examples. So, you know, nevertheless, a minority, but a significant minority of this money went to people who didn't need it or weren't eligible for it. And the majority of that money we're not going to be able to get back because it was legitimate uh, claims by people, even if uh, they didn't really need the money. Uh, so one of the things that, of course, is going to is going to eventually uh, come up uh, come upon us all, Philip, is that day of reckoning. Because, as you pointed out, uh, uh, the response by the government of Canada compared to other um, Western uh, wealthy nations, particularly the Europeans, uh, who are uh, who are more equipped uh, in terms of the way they conduct business with their, their citizens anyway for uh, citizen support programs. They're more socialist than we are, generally speaking, yep. so it's a little more efficient in terms of dishing out vast quantities of some uh, money to large groups of people, but they still, re- they were into replacing incomes, not doing this sort of massive compensation program that Canada did. Where I'm going with this is two, two, two places, Philip. One, the day of reckoning when the bill will be will be uh, so enormous that we're going to have to stop spending and start addressing the deficit. And B, is that likely to happen before or after what they're already calling the Great Reset? Well, I think this government is beginning to realize they're, they're approaching the limits of what they can spend and borrow in the short term. I mean, you know, we're talking about deficits of 20% of GDP. This yep. is way beyond even what we saw in World War II. Uh, so, I, you know, there comes a point at which uh, bond markets say, no, we're not going to finance any more of this. And there also comes a point at which, you know, people within the Minister of Finance will be explaining to the Minister that, you know, this implies a very large tax increase or spending cut down the road. There you go. Since this country is very resistant to spending cuts, it's likely to be a tax increase. And I cited recently in an op-ed in the Post uh, an example of what happened to Quebec after 2008-2009. Quebec is a society that it'll surprise a lot of people, but for 20 years there's been a very strong consensus they shouldn't run deficits. They ran a deficit during the global recession in 2008. They couldn't avoid it like anyone else. But very quickly, they decided to get rid of it. How did they get rid of it? They got rid of it by taxing ordinary people. This mirage that, you know, there's pockets of wealth out there or corporations, and we can just pass on this bill to this small group of people, and the majority of us won't pay anything as a mirage. Right. Uh, the ordinary person, like in Quebec, is going to face very steep increases in, in Quebec. It was sales taxes, health care premiums, tuition fees, and gasoline taxes. You can pick and choose the taxes you want, but... The taxes are going to go up, and they're going to go up for the average person. Uh, this idea that you know we'll just have the top one percent of wealth, wealthy people. Uh, unfortunately, this country doesn't have enough wealthy well, people. Well, that's it. That even if we taxed one hundred percent of their income, we still it would only be a drop in the bucket to all, all this. So, uh, and of course, the Great Reset includes even more 
uh, enormous spending with pharmacare, national daycare, et cetera, et cetera, none of which, by the way, uh, was ever voted for. But uh, the government, uh, and I'm quoting Christian Freeland here, sees this as an excellent opportunity to, well, affect a little change that was the initial that was the initial sentiment i suspect though they spend ridiculous amounts of money on polling and i suspect that they're beginning to learn that the appetite for this great reset philip is to say the very least quite limited that's my take what's yours well very much the same in fact if anything i might be even a little more cynical i'll say that this government's rolling out a lot of programs like it's uh, net zero 2050 that rolled out this week it, you know, they have very lofty goals, but there's no specifics. There's no spending behind this. There's no detailed plan. It's just, well, we intend to do some wonderful things. Right. Well, don't we all? I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I aspire to be perfect myself every day, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, I think this government, because of its lack of details, it, it already realizes the cupboard is bare. And there isn't the money around for a, a large amount of spending. In fact, you know, the, the real problem this country has in the short term is surviving the second wave of this pandemic. Indeed. And everything else is just secondary to that. And we don't have the money for these other things. In fact, we shouldn't even have the time or attention. We should be focused exclusively on surviving this second wave, which was completely predictable. Everybody knew it was coming. And yet governments, especially in healthcare departments, more than anyone, seem surprised by it. We don't have testing uh, available. We don't have tracing in place. Uh, we had all summer to get ready for this, and apparently we did nothing because we were, government was sitting around dreaming of pie-in-the-sky, mm-hmm. uh, green energy schemes, uh, and ignoring this crisis that was right in front of us. Well, and you pointed out something that all Canadians now completely appreciate. You know, the priority number one is not re- redesigning Canada as some kind of post-national futuristic experiment. The, the 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 priority number one is getting Canadians through COVID nineteen. Philip Cross, I'm fresh out of time, sir, and I am very grateful for yours. It's wonderful to speak to you. I don't think we've done this before, but now that we've met, we should probably uh, connect and and do this again, perhaps. After after the after the holiday season that sounds great i look forward to it thank you very much all right philip cross from the mcdonald laurier institute joining us from ottawa this morning he is robert burko mr burko is the ceo of elite digital and has been a previous guest on this program robert welcome back good morning to you Good morning to you, sir. Glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to have you with us. And we got two headlines that Andrew and I sort of, uh, we were uh, jamming a couple of days ago, trying to figure out how to cover both of these stories in one half hour with one guest. And we both decided you're the guy. So here are the two headlines and we'll take them in order. Smartphones may be making us more impulsive. This according to a very extensive new European study and should come as no surprise to anyone, Robert. The other one, uh, misinformation information online leading to confusion in understanding the severity of COVID-19. Significantly more uh, serious topic, Robert, but let's start with the the lighter of the two, because in many ways, they're both related, because a lot of people uh, who are getting misinformation in part two of this conversation are getting it online and on their phones. So let's talk first of all about people and smartphones. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about the world we live in now, right? I mean, if, if you were to draw a picture of the human body, you almost have to include an extra limb. And that extra limb today is people's smartphones. Yep. Um, people don't leave home without it. You know, at, at all times, I basically have my phone with me. Um, it's an extension of our body. And that's really changed everybody's behavior. Because essentially what it's done, for better or worse, and there's a lot of good that has come from that. Sure. But also for better or worse, we've also kind of become addicted to it. We now live in a world where I have all of the world's information in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Everything I do in my life, everything from I can order groceries, I can do my finances, I can get information, I can watch videos, I can learn something. All of that is on my phone, in my pocket at all times. Yep. And that's literally created a society of why would I wait for anything? Why would I wait for anything at all these days when we live in an on-demand society where everything is there at the touch of a button? And, of course, that, is, that provides a very short turnaround in terms of uh, gratification or need for satisfaction or resolution impulse, which becomes pretty, pretty narrow in some cases, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we've done now is, and if you think about it, right, let's think back to gambling, right? Because a lot of times when we talk about addiction and things like that, we talk about gambling, yep. right? So mm-hmm. with the slot machine, you're pressing a button, and when you press that slot machine bu- button or pull that lever, you're waiting to see what comes in the real spin, and you see what happens. Yep. Now imagine that same concept, but you're not pressing a button on a slot machine. You're swiping down on your phone to see if you got another like, another comment. Did anybody retweet me? Mm-hmm. We now live in a world that is measured by likes and followers and things like that, and it's so immediate. If I post something five seconds later, someone likes it. I'm posting it because I want that immediate gratification. Right. And we foster, we've really fostered a society that craves that, that needs it. I have three little kids at home, and when I film a video of them, and I'll never forget this, I film videos of them all the time, as all parents do, and my kids look at the camera at the end of the video and say, please like and subscribe. As if they think they're live streaming to the world. I'm like, I'm recording a video to send to your grandparents. They really don't have to like and subscribe. But yet at the same time, we fostered this culture of the the core success factor, the KPI, if you will, the key performance indicator that everybody is looking for, for that immediate gratification is I need more likes. I need more subscribers. I don't want to wait. I want to see it now. And it creates real anxiety in people, too, because hey, how come I posted something and I didn't get more likes? Well, there you go. I didn't get more comments. And they want that immediate gratification of there is no more, oh, I'll wait for it. The late gratification is, is gone. And we all know that because I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when all of us were so spoiled that they can click one button with Amazon and have something arrive at their door tomorrow. Yep. And then suddenly, wait a second, I'm not going to get the stuff that I ordered for a week an entire calendar week. This is insane. <laughs> and that's because we believe this should be on demand. I should have it minutes after I do this. That's right. And really, everybody, I mean, and, and I work in digital marketing at Elite Digital, so we talk about a frictionless experience. Okay, we talk about making things easier for consumers and playing into the fact that they have these impulse behaviors. Right. So sticking with the theme of Amazon, we all know adding to your cart on Amazon and checking out is a real easy process. And yet Amazon is smart enough to know that they need a buy now button. So the people who really are impulsive, that clicking add to cart is just too much work. They just click buy now and they have it right away. That's playing into the fact that we're impulsive. It's playing into the fact that I do want one click. It's playing into the fact that I'm way too lazy to reach into my pocket and pull out my wallet and pull out a credit card. I want to tap the side of my phone and immediately be able to pay for something. Right. Because I want it now and I don't want to wait. 
Yeah, and, and that's not even add to cart and go to checkout. It's buy now, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so, so at Elite, my team, you know, I, I often drive them nuts because we'll build an e-commerce store and they'll show me and they'll say, Rob, guess what? Great news. It only takes five clicks to check out. And I say, that's wonderful. Now do it in four. Right. And they'll go back and they'll come back to me and they'll say, guess what, Rob? We now did it in four. And I go, good, good, good. But you know what? Now I want it in three. And the reason I want it in three and the reason I push them to two and the reason things like Apple Pay and all that are getting more and more popular is because it's about making things so easy and so impulsive that if we think back years ago, it used to be when you were checking out of the grocery store, they put stuff by the cash, you'd pick up that pack of gum. They were relying on that impulse purchase. The magazine, it, et cetera. It, yep. Yep. Exactly. All that was right there. And now imagine that amplified a million times over because our entire worlds are online and that same impulse behavior that shows us something we want and makes it so easy for us to get it. It's just everywhere. It's everywhere in our lives these days. And we've all been conditioned that you don't have to wait. We live in an on-demand society, right? Even think about things like Netflix. You don't have to wait for episode two of that show. That's right. It's already there the whole season. Go to town. So we really developed this sort of culture of immediacy and instant gratification and I don't want to wait. And it's really changed the way we think. It's changed the way we behave. And marketers know this. So as a marketer, they're looking at a million different data points of every consumer. What do you like? What are you interested in? What are you likely going to click on? Right. And they put that in front of you because they know we're so impulsive that if you're starting to think about holiday gifts and you have a, a child, the advertisers know to put that in front of you and make it so easy to buy it because you're going to be impulsive. You're going to see what you need. You're going to act on it and you're going to jump on it. And that's basically the society we've become these days, which is really interesting. And it's pinpoint target marketing. It happens on your phone because they have enough data about you and your personal shopping habits and, and the makeup of the characters in your life to be able to target quite specific ads to the, uh, again, the holiday uh, the theme that you're developing here. I mean, it's, it's very cleverly and very personal, isn't it? Targeted stuff. Well, absolutely. I mean, let's ask the big question. Who do you think knows more about you? You or the advertisers? And I'm going to hear spoiler alert, everybody. It's not you. If I tell you to describe your habits and your interests and what you like and what you're probably going to buy next, you're not even close because the advertisers, and again, I want, I want to flag, like at Elite, we use this power for good. It's all done ethically and there's a proper way to do this. Sure. But there's so much data on what you do online. You know, your phone is tracking your location, your behaviors, everything you do on social media, the posts you like, what you're posting. All of this data formulates a profile about you that is vastly better than the way you would describe yourself. And that's why we all see such targeted ads. But coming back to sort of the impulsiveness of it, when you see an ad that's hyper-related to you versus I see an ad that's hyper-related to me, that's why I'm keen to click on it, you're keen to click on it, you're keen to buy it, because you're like, wow, it's like my phone heard what I was thinking and put <laughs> yeah, yeah. this ad in front of me. Exactly. And it didn't hear what you were thinking. It's just smart enough to know how to connect the dots, knows we're all impulsive, and it says if Robert Burko is about to buy this item, we want to put this item in front of Robert Burko. Robert Burko joining us from Toronto. Mr. Burko is the CEO of Elite Digital. It's a marketing uh, online company. Robert has been back with us today. We're talking about a couple of things. Uh, and the big story, of course, is the uh, the second wave, Robert, the fact that we're dealing with uh, an escalation, an uptick in case occurrences of COVID-19 from coast to coast in the country, and a lot of frustration being a 
expressed among Canadians of all ages with respect to the kind of information we're receiving. A lot of it deliberate misinformation and some of it just poorly communicated from the top down. For example, uh, 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 we had a guest on with us last weekend, Robert, that said governments ought to spend, they got so much money and, and, and they have only one message, which is, you know, observe the protocols, uh, behave yourself and, and stay indoors as much as possible. Uh, and yet one person pronouncing that message to all isn't necessarily going to guarantee the message will be heard by all. For example, Ryan Reynolds did a Twitter thing with don't kill my mom, which was spectacularly effective in the age group that it was supposed to go to. Uh, what they're saying, though, is there's not enough of that targeting of specific groups by government to make sure they understand exactly the same message, perhaps expressed just a little differently. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, there's a war. There's a war happening, and it's an unfortunate war, but there's an information war happening, and right now, at this very moment, it's questionable about who's winning. Yeah. And there's a lot of examples where, sadly, misinformation is winning. And we know we live in a, a world where perception is reality. Okay? That's the, that, that's, that's the situation. So perception is reality, which means the information we get is what we internalize as truth. So now, unlike years and years and years ago, right, think back you know, let's go back 30 years in time, okay? If you wanted to, you know, I was doing a, I was in school, I was a student, I had to get information, I had to go to the library, right? Uh-huh. I had to go, go to the library, hopefully people remember what a library is still, but we had to go there, and that was where you'd find sources of truth and you'd find facts. And then, you know, I remember when Microsoft released Encarta in, or, you know, 95, and suddenly we had an encyclopedia, and now we can get truth there. Well, jump fast forward to today, and truth could, in theory, be everywhere. Yeah. Everything is online. You don't need to go to the library. When I was a student, Wikipedia was not a valid source. Right. Wikipedia could be a valid source. But you could almost find a source online for any fact you want to prove. If I tell my wife today something and she goes, that's not truthful, I could find a website that says what I just said is probably truthful. <laughs> and that's concerning. Yes. And that's a problem. I remember at the beginning of COVID, my mother sent me a message saying, I heard if you can, like, Hold your breath for 10 seconds. You don't have COVID. And I said, Mom, if testing was that easy, why are they all talking about this problem with testing? Everyone could just hold their breath and we'd be done. So the reality is we're getting fed all of this misinformation. And that's really a problem at a time when we're dealing with a global pandemic. And the truth and the science is critically important. If everybody were to follow the science, if everybody were to heed the advice of the experts who understand how this works, we'd all be doing a better job. We'd be able to fight this thing a lot better. But in a world with mixed information, where sometimes our governments are bringing a knife to a gunfight, sometimes the people trying to spread misinformation are trying harder. Yes. It's easy to put a message in front of someone on social media. It's easy to have websites that spew false narratives. So if our government is trying to bring a knife to a gunfight to say, here's what we need you to do, what they're saying may be good, but they have to say it louder. They have to say it more consistently. You have to fight fire with fire. And if people are going to be spewing falsehoods, especially as we get closer to the vaccine, where the, the, the efficacy, the science around it, the safety profile, all that needs to be understood. Yeah. And it's, we're, we're literally days away from starting to see things like the vaccine is not safe and the vaccine is going to make your leg fall off. And none of that is true. But if you read it enough times, and people start to think that maybe this is true, maybe the science doesn't matter, maybe what Joe's blog is telling me is the truth, we're going to have a real problem on our hands because if people read the misinformation 
and don't do the safety protocols, don't follow the science of the vaccine, we're in for a much longer, tougher run of this than we have to be. Yeah, and, and we want to get 30 seconds here, Robert, but governments can help us a lot by smartening up with the, uh, the focus of their messages, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, there needs to be consistent, focused messaging that's hitting all the target demographics. There has to be one narrative. It has to be the truth. They have to spread that to everybody. They have to spread it properly. You know, if the virus can spread rapidly, the truth and good information has to has to spread even more rapidly because that's how we all fight this thing together. Interesting stuff. Uh, Give us the website, Robert, so people can go learn more about your company while they're trying to uh, sort out all this excellent conversation you've given us this morning. Absolutely, sir. Go to EliteDigitalAgency.com. Proudly uh, helping all Canadian businesses uh, get through this tough time with great digital marketing solutions. Great to have you back, Robert. Always fun. And uh, we'll do this again. And stay well, okay? Thank you, sir. You too. Stay safe. Yeah, you bet. Robert Burko uh, joining us from Elite Digital Agency uh, in Toronto. Interesting guy. And uh, some great advice for government there. And uh, I don't know about you, but we do hear expressions of frustration in terms of, shall we say, mixed messaging it's not very helpful canada is among the world's largest agricultural exporters you've known this in high since high school we are responsible for feeding billions of people every day the industry also nourishes our economy from farmers and ranchers to food producers suppliers retailers and truckers an estimated 2.3 million of us rely on agriculture for employment contributing more than 110 billion dollars annually to our gross domestic product we have been a leading agriculture producer we have and i'm mean, going this goes back to high school Stuart. well i was taught in ontario in the 60s canada was the breadbasket of the world and we remain in that maybe not the but we are certainly a breadbasket to the world and the only reason we're able to, to continue saying that is because of ag tech agriculture technology and one of the most innovative places where agricultural technology is being advanced anywhere in canada is in alberta at olds college and Stuart cullum is the president of olds college in olds alberta on the line this morning Stuart, thanks for joining us it's great to have you with us today Good morning, Sterling. Happy to be with you. Well, it's good to have you with us, and uh, I'm sure you uh, you didn't go to the same high school I did, but in high school, I can vividly recall being taught that Canada was the breadbasket to the world. Uh, it, I mean, we've got some pretty stiff competition from other places on the planet, but we take that position very seriously to this moment, don't we? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Canada is a large country with you know a lot of uh, land uh, availability and capability to grow you know, and produce uh, agriculture products. We, we are a tremendous global leader of agriculture products and, and we um, can grow and then produce a diversity of agriculture products, which really makes us a global leader. Exactly. And that's why we're even on a relatively small population. We're able to maintain our, at least our, our standing with our competitors. And a lot of that has to do with, with agricultural innovation. Tell us a little bit, please, about the, the Olds Smart Farm. Sure. Yeah. Well, the Olds College Smart Farm was envisioned um, in in uh, 2017 and launched in 2018. And basically, it's a it's a 2,800 acre uh, commercial scale living laboratory uh, for the development scale up demonstration of agriculture technology. What that does is it allows 
um, technology companies and agriculture companies to come onto our farm and test and develop their, their technology um, before it's, it's fully uh, commercially um, uh, viable. Right. Um, and it allows, it allows them to do it at commercial scale. And then what it also does is it, is it puts our learners in an environment where they can access technology um, that they're going to have to deal with when they get out into the field. Um, so it's an exciting place where companies can develop and grow their companies and their technology, and it's a great place to learn. Exactly, and I was going to say that some of those companies who are there on on a kind of an ongoing experimental basis will benefit from those agriculture students in the field who are going to say something like, well, you know, that's a great machine, but why don't you try doing it this way? And, and so it's a win-win for both sides, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It really is. Um, they really get exposed to agriculture's next leaders. Um, and we know that many of those leaders are going to come from our urban centers. Sure. And so students who want to work with artificial intelligence and automation, they can get access to a lot of the cool technology um, that's coming. And, and uh, those agriculture technology companies and, and uh, the industry can see some of those key leaders emerging through Olds College. Let's talk a little bit because I know that you've you've done a lot of partnership with Telus by way of connecting your farm in southern Alberta, and it's not a small farm. You said it's twenty eight hundred acres, a good chunk of land, Stuart. So, uh, it, but through Telus, you're connected to the planet. And where does five G come into all of this? Because it's still pretty new for all of us, and yet you're all jazzed up about five G. Why? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, egg technology is really, really cool and very, very important for um, economic and environmental sustainable production. Mm -hmm. But it needs to work on a foundation of connectivity. If you cannot connect the farm, a lot of that technology is not going to work very well. And so it, connect, it starts with connectivity. But what 5G provides is a, is a capability to transfer large amounts of data. I was just talking to one of our researchers yesterday, and I mean, we were pulling terabytes of data in the last growing season. Um, that data needs to, needs to be captured and needs to be flowed quickly in order for us to make quick decisions. And so 5G just provides a tremendous foundation for producers and for our ag tech companies to be able to do the kinds of things that they envision um, in using that technology. Interesting. Can I just dive into that for another quick second, Stuart, and ask you, as a, sure. as a growing season is underway in your fields at the Olds College Farm, what sort of data are you able to gather in these large quantities? Is it the growth rate of whatever the crop coming up may be? Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's about pulling um, sensor data, um, it's about pulling um, high-resolution drone imagery um, and, what that, and, and other kinds of things. And what that allows us to do is it allows us to monitor yields. It allows us to create um, prescription maps so that we can uh, precisely apply applications. And that's one of the important parts of this is that we want to be very precise in our applications so that we can reduce inputs right. and become more environmentally sustainable and economically viable. So let's just talk about that, because as you know, moving forward, there is going to be greater emphasis on uh, a demand for food. The world's population is not diminishing by anyone's uh, imagination at all, Stuart. But we need to reconcile an increase in demand or a constant increase in demand with also a corresponding need to clean up our act, so to speak, in delivering the, the food that the demand requires. 
Agree. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say for the last number of decades in Canadian agriculture, because we are a global leader, what you've seen is a, is a significant increase in productivity, meaning we're producing more, and a decrease in um, in application of inputs. That's water, that's chemical and other things. Right. And that's critically important. If we're going to increase food production, we need to do it in a way that's sustainable. Um, because if we do that, then it's economically viable for our producers and it's good for the environment. And I think it's also something that the public um, demands. And so the use of technology and the ability to pull data and transfer data and connect is critically important to be able to do that, produce more while using less. And it's interesting because, you know, we tend to think of the need for communication uh, at the farm level to be between the producer and the customer. And, of course, there's it's infinitely more complex than that, especially on the farm. So, Stuart, some of these uh, yeah. tip of the spear ag-, ag tech innovations you're working on at the old college farm, how soon can some of this uh, this new stuff be available to, say, farmers here in the Fraser Valley just down the road from me? Yeah, well, it's very close. I mean, we are commercial scale. Um, we're a commercial scale environment, so we're not talking about bench scale or plot scale type of things. Most of this technology is very close to commercial application, or okay. it's just in the early stages. And so you'll see automation happening um, very, very soon, and it already is to some extent. We're working with a company called Dot, um, which is fully automating um, seeding and and spreading. Um, and other applications on field. And it's really cool. People can see DOT working at oldscollege.ca and, and see how our learners are being exposed to a fully autonomous commercial scale application of crops. Uh, that's encouraging stuff. Olds College, all one word, oldscollege.ca. Stuart Cullum is the president of Olds College in Olds, Alberta. This is exciting stuff. I come from a, a long line of Southern Ontario dairy farmers, Stuart, so I'm, I'm keen on agriculture mm. stories. And some of the ag tech stuff that's going on in Canada right now is just absolutely dazzling. So keep up the good work and we'll talk again. Thanks. This is a super exciting space, and I just look uh, look forward to seeing lots of folks from from your region um, entering into the into the sector. And and uh, you know, you can look to Olds College as a place to train and to learn and to and to see some of the great things that are happening. I appreciate it. OldsCollege.ca. Stuart Cullum, thanks very much for this. We'll talk again, sir, and not likely till after the holidays. So very very far in advance. Stay well and have a great holiday season ahead. You too, Sterling. Anytime. Thank you. Stuart Cullum in Olds, Alberta. Exciting stuff. And tell us involved in all of that with the connectivity stuff right there from the, the crops in the fields to the satellites overhead. Great stuff. Andrew and I were looking through theconversation.com, which is a, a website we frequent con, uh, a lot, and saw this headline. SpaceX Starlink satellites are about to ruin stargazing for everyone. Well, we said, let's find out about this. It was written, it's a story, it's an article written by Dr. Samantha Lawler at the University of Regina. Dr. Lawler is a, a, a an astronomer and is also in the department, a professor in the Department of Physics at the University of Regina and joins us now uh, from Saskatchewan. Dr. Lawler, Samantha, good morning. Thanks for being with us. 
Good morning. So, you know, it wasn't too long ago when those of us who like to gaze at the stars would go, oh, wait, there's a satellite. Oh, wow, there's a satellite. I haven't seen a satellite. And now you are saying you start this article off by by saying you step outside your home in rural Saskatchewan. So already you have the advantage of being able to literally step outside your door and see the darkened sky that few of us in the big cities get to enjoy. And then you started to cuss as you looked up (laughs) with that child like appreciation of a full star sky and you went oh rats and then oh rats again because you started to pick up on satellites your point being that a satellite is no longer a unique item in space at all is it no no and i used to enjoy seeing satellites right like it's fun to go to a satellite tracker and find out what bright satellite you just saw. Mm -hmm. But this is about to become a mundane and possibly even annoying event because uh, so SpaceX is is in the process of launching thousands of satellites. So for reference, there's there's about 3,000 active satellites in orbit right now. Uh, SpaceX has uh, 800 Starlinks up now. Wow. Uh, they have permission to launch 12,000 more, and they're seeking permission to launch another 30,000. So increasing the number of active satellites by more than 10 times. And, uh, and their satellites are bright. Uh, they're, they're brighter than 99% of the satellites that are currently up. And why so, is that? Uh, so they're very easy to see. Um, that, that's a good question. Um, so I am not an engineer, right. uh, but uh, the, like you can see it, right? I mean, this is, this is a fact that they are very bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to a satellite tracker and look up when, when Starlinks will fly over your location, and uh, you can see them yourself. Sure. Uh, so it probably has something to do with... Uh, with heat dissipation, right? Uh, not good for satellites to heat up too much. But uh, but the point is that these satellites were launched without any consideration for uh, how much light pollution they will add to the night sky. Interesting stuff. So do you have any idea, Samantha, if you said they've got, what is it, 4,000 up already and, and an approval already for another 12,000 satellites? And I'm assuming these aren't large objects. They don't need to be anymore. But, and I'm also hearing about launches of clusters of satellites rather than one at a time. What do you know about that? Yeah, so so um, so SpaceX has been launching uh, batches of sixty uh, Starlinks at a time. They've been launching them every two to three weeks, um, and they plan to continue doing that. Uh, so uh, yeah, they're they're not large, right? The the idea is to have uh, many of them overhead at any given moment, so uh, for uh, for uh, internet access uh, globally, right? Um, uh, which is great, right? Uh, but there's there's been no thought to uh, the consequences of this, right? Uh, we shouldn't have to choose between uh, rural internet and astronomy. Interesting right? stuff. So is that is that the primary purpose of this massive expansion of satellite activity in space? Because I know the government of Canada, for example, quite quite recently, in fact, within the last ten days, has talked about the. Uh, need to deliver uh, broadband services to every person living in Canada. So uh, obviously yeah. that's, that, that's, that's, that's a mission going on in Ottawa, but that's really, is that's what, what Elon Musk is all about is just is essentially all of these satellites are to a more connected global community. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the point of Starlink is, is internet. There are several other mega constellations like this in development with the goal of, global internet, right? Um, 
And, uh, and this, the, again, this is great, especially during the pandemic where, you know, so mo- many of us like me are working from home and rely on good internet, right? Sure, yeah. Um, but again, like we have to think about the consequences of this. There should, we shouldn't have to choose. Um, there's no regulation currently on, on, uh, light pollution by satellites. Um, and, uh, you know, no one has, this, this will change the night sky globally for everyone. Right. So, uh, so no one was asked if this is Aha. okay. Right. I see. So uh, ideally, yeah. ideally would there be, if you had your, if you were uh, emperor for a day, there would be some kind of global uh, c- committee that, uh, any, uh, agency looking to launch an object into space would have to run by this committee saying, look, uh, here's the purpose of the launch and here's the degree of light this object will emit once it's yeah. up there and then that <laughs> yeah, could be exactly. controllable yeah that would be great <laughs> um right now it's all through um so effectively uh an american uh agency is responsible for regulating launches because they're responsible for uh for controlling uh radio broadcasts over the u.s and uh so that has so most uh satellites that broadcast and radio want to have a piece of the u.s market sure so they have to go through this this uh the fcc the uh an american federal agency mm-hmm. um so effectively they've put themselves in charge of all space launches but it's an american agency that's in charge of space launches that affect the entire planet right so there definitely needs to be some sort of global input on this um but that is slow <laughs> right uh these launches are happening now the sky is changing now so um, so the the only thing that uh, that I can hope for is uh, um, outcry by consumers, right? That's another thing that that companies will respond to. Right. If if enough people tell SpaceX that yes, we do want to still see the stars, this is important to us, um, then maybe they'll listen. And you talk also about losing our connections. I only got about a minute or so here, Samantha. But talk to us about yeah. about that element to the conversation that we haven't talked about. Right. I mean, you know, humans have been connected to, to the stars for thousands of years, right? Our entire history as a species, we've looked up at the sky. And That's how North America was discovered, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we, know, uh, we, we know that we have this deep connection. Um, that's what we do as astronomers. We look up and we make up stories to explain what we see, right? right? Um, that hasn't changed. Um, so if we're suddenly not able to do that anymore, if we have to look through a grid of bright satellites to try to see those stars, um, it, it completely changes our relationship with, with the night sky, something that we've had for thousands of years, and that really worries me. Interesting stuff. And, uh, and are, are you sensing, as you look around, your, even your peer group around the planet, are you sensing some anxiety in that regard? Um, I think, honestly, most people are unaware that this is happening, right? You see a few satellites, um, but I think most people, even if you're aware that Starlink is coming, I don't think that most people realize how bright it is and how much it will change everyone's experience of the night sky. Interesting. Well, thanks for being with us to kind of tip us off to all of this, Samantha, because uh, you're right. It is going to make a difference, and we appreciate your time. And uh, we'll start being a little more, uh, shall we say, suspicious in the night sky. <laughs> so th- yeah, thanks for having me. Clear skies, everybody. Go out and look up. All right. Thanks a lot. Dr. Samantha Lawler at the University of Virginia. Great stuff there, too. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.